Because of you, the listener, this week we are going to get into the Christian thinking on poverty and on racism, but we will start here. I have an email from someone who disagrees with me a good bit on fundamentalism on this week's Core Track Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening, and I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. I would imagine that is the type of teaser that does cause your, calls your ears to perk up a little, and that you want to get into some of those controversial topics, things like poverty and racism and the Christian response there too. And I'm not doing it of my own volition, by the way. I am doing it because you, the listener, gave me some responses, and there's a question here as well on one of those that is worth getting into. You know, I think I said on a show last year, because I saw it on a meme, that we, we tell people in polite company you don't talk about politics and religion, and what we end up having is people who are unable to talk about hard things or things with depth and seriousness. And so we should be the people that don't ignore hard topics, don't avoid them, but come at them with some grace and some humility, but also knowing fully what we believe, why we believe it. Uh, And again, having that conversation with an attitude, a demeanor of grace, charity, but then knowing why we believe what we believe and being able to articulate it. We're going to do that and a whole lot more on this week's show. But first, my name is Corey Truax. We're dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything here on the Corey Truax Show. If you are listening live on his radio talk 91.9, 92.9, hey, thanks. That's a, I'm grateful for that if you listen on Saturday morning. If you are listening to the podcast, wherever you find podcasts, thank you for listening. I have an email here from a new listener that we're going to get into. Let me also mention I am the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church currently still meeting on the internet for now, but man, I've got to assume that's coming to an end soon. There's a lot more positive news about the coronavirus and COVID-19 lately, and so hopefully Beachwood Church will be meeting at 1030 on Sunday mornings at our property there in Greenville, South Carolina, and you, yes you, you're invited. Now, Caitlin writes in to CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com. She says she recently found my show, which several, there's a few dozen of you who have. I've got a little that spike in listenership, so thank you to the new listeners. Someone apparently sent her my show. I did a couple shows here recently that featured content regarding the independent fundamental Baptists. And Caitlin had to take some exceptions with some of the things I said there. And by the way, I did, because Charlie, a faithful listener, corrected me on some things that I I went too broad on, and so came back and provided some more nuance. And then Caitlin says she went back and listened to some other shows, like she looked back through my catalog, and just when titles popped up that were interesting, she listened to some others. So first of all, thank you, Caitlin. But here's some of her response. I can't read it all because it is not, it's too long, so I'm not going to be able to go verbatim. When I say too long, like you did the right thing, by the way, Caitlin, I'm not, you, did, you did great. I'm saying we can't do it because the show is only... 50 minutes per week. Like, we got into some good content last week from a listener, uh, Christina. I couldn't read up really all of her email either, right? I had to edit some, so I didn't mean it was too long for you. It's just too long for us. All right, here we go. Number one, I, I wouldn't say denigrated independent fundamental Baptists. I just gave some correctives on, uh, on some ways in which that I find that particular denomination or movement to have some Pharisee in them a little bit. We all do. I've, def- I've definitely got some Pharisee in me as well. But primarily about making human standards of dress, of music, making human preference, 
and take, taking that and putting it on the same level as Scripture. That my preference is what the Bible demands and that they don't have the authority to do so. Caitlin writes in to say that fundamentalists, though, for all of my criticism, they're the ones that get the most, that understand the concept of holiness the most because of how much they focus on separation. That idea of separation, it's one of the big themes in independent fundamental Baptist churches, and I know from experience that is one of the themes Come out from them because you're not like them. Be separate for the Lord your God, or be holy because the the Lord thy God is holy. Now I'm quoting quoting the King James because I'm dealing with this particular movement right now. So I I actually don't I want to start by not being immediately immediately disagreeable and just say I, I get where you're coming from coming from. I can honor that sentiment. I can honor the sentiment that. This group of people with whom I have some stylistic difference, and not just stylistic, part of the difference is that I think you're imposing upon believers things you're not allowed to impose scripturally. But yeah, I can see where you're coming from. That, that where, the, where the heart is not a, uh, it, it's not a bad motive, but for having these standards of dress or music or, or where you go and what you don't do or whatever you don't watch, whatever the standard is, for a lot of folks, that's a, that's a good heart. The heart is I want to be I want to be separate. I got you. Now, in response to that, in response, Caitlin, to you saying to me, well, this is the group that understands holiness the most because they are so separate. I would argue the independent fundamental Baptist movement also misunderstands what the world is. That's the the, the, the term tends to be be separate from the world. For example. I was going to play the audio for you. I just forgot to pull it. Out on that Twitter page I follow, um, it's at Fake Sermon, and the title of the Twitter page is uh, IFB, IFB Preacher Clips. Yeah, IFB Preacher Clips. You can find it at Fake Sermon. I saw about a 20-second, maybe a little bit more than that, clip of a preacher who is talking about that, uh, that passage. They love a whole bunch in Deuteronomy, that uh, a man should wear that which pertaineth to a man, and a woman should wear that which pertaineth to a woman. And if you don't, it's an abomination. It's an abomination for a man to wear that which pertaineth to a woman. That's the King James language. And then he actually responds to something I would say to him, because the argument there is what pertains to a woman is a skirt in a dress, period, bottom line, and what pertains to a man is pants. Period, bottom line. So women don't wear pants or anything except skirts and dresses. Men wear nothing but pants, right? That's that's how it that's how it should work. Now, I would immediately respond to someone who made that argument, right? Okay, I'm with you. Now, when we apply that, we recognize that cultures are different. For example, at certain times in the history of Scotland. It'd be very normal for a man to wear a kilt. That in the time even of Jesus and the apostles, pants weren't really being worn by much of anybody. So we apply the concept of wear what pertains to a man and and women wear what pertains to a woman in the culture and the time in which you live. And this guy actually was responding to my point. Like I wasn't even there, but he was responding to it. And he said, well, some of you might say, what about kilts in Scotland? Well, I just say they're wrong. 
Wait. What? But it pertains to a man. Are you are you defining man as white American man from a particular set of decades? That's not how that works at all. And so, that's what I, when I say the world, they, they separate themselves from the world. Well, part of what they've defined is the world isn't the world. It's a, it's a thing they made up. It's a standard they made up. It's a standard they misapplied scripture to. And we could do that with other, we could do that with music. Drums are of the world. Why? Can you, can you give me that scripturally? No, you can't. But you just decided. And so, well, it, the guys wear pants, women wear dresses, and they don't play drums in church. So they're separate. Well, no, that's not at all what separate would be. So, there, there is, I, I actually agree. There's a heart here for we want to do what the Bible says, and the Bible says be separate. Cool. Now, let's be separate on the things that actually deeply matter. The world lives for stuff. We don't, so let's be separate. Let's be people that don't live for material things. The world lives from experience to experience to feel alive. All right, well, let's be separate. Let's live for the eternal. The world it has disunity and strife. All right, well, how about in the church? Let's be separate. Let's have unity. Let's love each other. Those are the ways in which we really need to be separate. Now, of course, there are matters of conduct, matters of the things that we watch or don't watch and dress and the ways we don't dress. Obviously, there are standards there, but the heart of be ye separate, be ye different, is that the way that we love and that we're generous and how we prioritize our money and prioritize our calendars. I guess give you one way to be separate. While when everything restarts again and the world is operable, when every other kid's parents are are designing their entire family's budget and calendar around the baseball schedule and the soccer schedule that happens on the weekends and on Sundays, be ye separate. Organize your weekend around the Sabbath. Organize your weekend around the Lord's Day and being with the people of God. Yeah, so be separate. What happened there in fundamentalism, Caitlin, and for all of the all of this audience, is you created, maybe you're not even part of it, but what they did was create a, a subculture. So you have broader American culture, and the idea of separation was to actually come out from the culture that exists and create one where you don't have to interact with the world anymore, really. So we're, we're going to create our own music, our own bookstores, maybe even have the own set, our own set of restaurants and car maintenance places that we know who the owners are. Like We're going to have our own subculture outside of the culture. And then except for, admittedly, something a strength of independent fundamental Baptists for, quote, soul-winning, end quote, efforts, door-to-door efforts, visitation efforts, street preaching, handing out tracts. Beyond that, there, wasn't an, there was never an actual interaction with the culture because we were so separate. It wasn't the church going into the world to be salt and light. It became a church retreating from the world to be so separate that we really don't interact with the world much at all in a meaningful way. So, to your first part of your email, Caitlin, thank you for finding the show. I'm so glad you have, and thank you for taking the time to write to the show. All of you can do that at CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com. But to your first topic, I honor the idea that independent fundamental Baptists have tried to come out and be separate from the world. But I think the, the methods whereby 
are misguided. I hope I said that with enough grace. And if I didn't, my bad. Please have some grace for me. When we come back, Caitlin has a second topic that is really fun. Uh, and it's, it's important. It's a very important one for us. And that is how we in Christianity talk about race, racism, racial reconciliation, and what the Christian's responsibility is there in this culture. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Hello there. Thank you for sticking with the Corey Truax Show. Here is an idea that will improve your life. You should find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And find me there, like the page, send a friend request, hit follow, all the various and sundry activities you take part in on social media. Just do those, and you can follow along. It'll be a good time together. To whomever forwarded my show to Caitlin, thank you. Caitlin's now written in and has two topics. They have been fun. One was about fundamentalism and holiness being separate. Number two, to sum up Caitlin's well-argued and articulate view, she says of me, because I have in the archive, in the archive of the Corey Act show, there's a good bit about racial, recon- racial reconciliation. It's been 10 to 15% of my content. I have a, I wouldn't call it a sermon. I think I would call it a lecture out in the archive called What Does the Bible Really Say About Racism? And so there's lots of content for me out on this. It's, it's something that I've, I've wanted us to be more aggressive on in the Christian faith, that we really engage on the topic because the world does need the biblical worldview spoken into our prejudices. And Caitlin's response to me, as I have talked about race a lot, was just preach the gospel. Just preach the Bible. You don't have to deal with racism directly um, because that's, her argument is, and it's, it's not just hers, it's a lot of people out there. The argument is, that's the world's priorities. The secular world's priorities is dealing with race all the time. And so you can, uh, or, and, or you shouldn't, let the, the world drive your agenda. You're letting the world tell you what to talk about, what to preach about, what to be concerned about. That's a worldly concern. The Christian's concern is preach the gospel, preach the Bible. This is something that I've even heard people I really like say. Todd Friel says stuff like this. If you're listening on his Radio Talk 91.9 and 92.9, Friel's on this network, and Friel's excellent. He's way better at this than I am. And also has a much, much much larger audience. But he says stuff like that. Like, we don't need to be dealing with racism directly. You just preach the gospel. Preach the the law and preach grace. Alistair Begg, who was one of my probably top five living preachers to listen to. I love Alistair Begg. And he says this. He says people that should, there's going to be people who should know better, who are going to get involved in racial reconciliation that should just be preaching the gospel. He really said that about Russell Moore as best I could tell, who runs the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention, and Russell Moore is heavily involved in these conversations. And and I think should be lauded for it. I think he does a great job with it. And so to respond to all of those people, but being primarily prompted by this email, I don't understand that perspective for this reason. We don't say that about any other sin. 
because even the world, I think, would say something about like bad about arrogant people. But we'll preach against arrogance. Even secularists would say a bad thing about spending money you don't have or living above your means, and we'll we'll preach against that. It feels like this is getting unique. Like there's a section of Christianity that is saying uniquely, don't talk about this. When it's it's being preached against and talked about as one of the various and sundry sins that people commit. I would add, preaching against racism in a culture where there, it is a problem, and praise the Lord that it's not the problem it once was, but it still is an issue. It will be one of the application points if just preaching the Bible. For my theological tribe, the, the family of theologians that I'm in, I shouldn't have called myself a theologian. That was, whoo, I'm not. I read, you know, I read Wayne Grudem. I listen to a lot of John Piper, David Platt, Matt Chandler. I, I, I'm not a theologian, but I think theological thoughts. I read theological material. I want to think biblically about, around, about the world around me. I also read a lot of Bible and listen to a lot of Bible and try to listen, try to learn it that way too. But this, the, the, the group that I most identify with we believe in exegetical preaching, meaning we are verse by verse, line by line, pick a book of the Bible, go through it. Once we're finished with it, go on to the next one. Like that's, or go on to another one. That's how we do it. And it is most of Christianity. So both the independent fundamental Baptist, but also the seeker sensitive, more newbie, new, uh, I shouldn't call them new age, but more modern. They're very comfortable with, hey, we're doing a series about relationships or we're doing a series about money management, or we're doing a series about pick a topic, and that's called topical. So I'm exegetical, they're topical. And I'm not calling one sinful and one not sinful. I'm just telling you what my preference is. I think there's safety in exegetical preaching. But when you're doing it exegetically, you're going to come to things like God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. You're going to come to James saying, Hey, when someone who's obviously wealthy comes into your church, don't put them on the front row and make a big deal about them and put the poor person on the back row and try to hide them. Don't show partiality. You're going to come to Acts 8. Acts 8. I'm almost positive. I love the book of Acts. It's my favorite biblical. It's my second favorite biblical book behind Ruth. And we got early in Acts. Like when everyone thinks we should be nailing it, right? It's the early church. How bad could they be? You know, they're the first ones. They're the prototype. And we have them coming and saying, hey, the Greek Jews and the Jew Jews and their widows, they're not getting along because the, the Jew Jews aren't giving out to the widows, the, the Greek Jews. They're not getting, getting the same provisions. So there was, there was a preference. There was a partiality. There was a bias. And as you come to the texts about pride and partiality, do you know how you apply that to your people? One of them is racism. You preach the Bible. And one of the things you'll come to is, hey, you see these people right here that are having a bias or are being partial towards one group? So don't do that based on race, okay? Because that's what the, the text is teaching us in part. Or one of the things that where racism comes from is pride. You think your ethnicity, your background makes you better than somebody? 
not only is that a pride, that's a really, uh, that's a really, what word am I allowed to use on the air? That's a dumb pride. That is an unintelligent pride. It's ignorant, right? And so, so for all those folks, well, just preach the gospel. Okay, sure will. I'll just preach the Bible. One of the, one of the things that's going to come as an application point eventually, as you get through all the text, is, hey, if you feel better than somebody else, quit it. That's not biblical. Hey, are you finding that you're more partial to one group over the other? Stop that, too. Hey, man, we could also apply that to other things. So this idea of partiality. Do you prefer a person based on their category, or and do you, do you denigrate or think less of someone because of their category? We can apply that to race. But, you know, you, you come to other things. Some folks think, look down on poor people. Hey, some people look down on rich people. There's some fo- oh, uh, some people look down on homeschoolers. Some people look down on parents who send their kids to public school. There are those who will put you in a category if you uh, feed your kids sugar and or vaccinate them. And then the other group that doesn't feed their kids sugar and maybe doesn't vaccinate them. And they're willing to look down and think differently about each other based on a category. It doesn't even have to be race because the truth of the Bible will preach against pride and partiality and that will apply itself to race. So, Caitlin, thank you. Really good email to create some content for the show. I'm sure your fellow listeners are uh, appreciative of that. And if you, listener, you want to do that, you can reach the show at CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, and you can make the show better because if I come on here and pontificate, that's no fun. We've got to have something to respond to. All right, here we go. Next one. Last week, I actually responded to Christina's email, asked the question, if the government did less, do I really believe the church would step up and do more? And my answer is yes. Uh, and then I got a response from someone I consider to have a lot of wisdom and a friend. Glenn, actually, so he's, a, uh, he's not just a listener, he's a friend. I'm going to read the text to you because it's short. He texted me and said, churches will never... So that's the topic, so there you know. The topic is this. Is Could the church ever replace government when it comes to stepping up and caring for those who need assistance? He texted and said, churches will never replace the government in providing for the needy because in the 1960s, there was only churches providing that, that support. And it was so bad that a Texas president, that's Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson, pushed through the system we have built today. Um, so really quick, the poverty, like, there's so much I would want to respond to there. Poverty is is better than it was in 1960. But I also don't want to act like it was all that bad in 1960 comparatively to human history. So there's another thing I think we don't we don't appreciate enough. Like I don't think that Americans when we think about poverty that we do, we don't uh, because we're not we haven't solved it all the way yet that we don't recognize how awesome it is here. And even looking back to the 1960s the, I mean, I think there would be some poor people now who would look back on the 60s maybe even in, in some ways and de- desire those times because of how much a uh, cost of living was so much lower. And the, the, the dollar you did earn went further 
at the grocery store, at the gas station, paying rent or a mortgage. There's at least some argument in some parts of the country for that. But your your poor people in 1950 and 60 were poor, and it's it's never um it's never comfortable. When you compare the American poor of 1960 to the impoverished of the other thousands of years of human history, they were opulently wealthy, comparatively. That still doesn't mean it's okay. Doesn't mean they don't, don't they don't need help. But I would argue that while we had a, an issue with poverty, it did not need the war on poverty that Lyndon Johnson waged on it. I would even I I, I argue this fairly vociferously. Lyndon Baines Johnson is the worst president in American history. What he did to us economically is worse than what Franklin Delano Roosevelt did to us economically in terms of driving our debt deficit and changing Americans' relationship to the government. Lyndon Baines Johnson is, is the president that makes it possible to destroy the nuclear family. Because there, there was a situation, men, if you started a family with a woman, intentionally or unintentionally, now do your job, be a man of honor, and take care of that woman and that child. And it's Lyndon Baines Johnson that comes along and says, no, we'll be dad. The government will be dad. Who needs families? It's, it is the, the switching out of communities and helping one another and churches helping communities that allowed for the family disintegration that we ultimately had. I don't think that the correlation here should be missed. Again, always in statistics and information, correlation is not causation. Just because two things happened at the same time doesn't mean one caused the other. But this correlation, I think, is fairly strong. And we have some data out there specifically with minority families that it was very real. It became a very real thing that the government's going to take care of you. And so when you want to leave your family, when you want to separate from your family, you can do that because the government's there to to swoop in and take care of it. And so there was consequences to those actions. So first, the church, the church and pr- like private people for doing the charity before government came along with the Great Society in 1950 or 60, while recognizing it, it was a bad situation for a lot of people, it's n- it wasn't a uniquely terrible thing like compared to poor people historically, poor people even now. And so we, we responded to it by basically bankrupting the country, or trying to. Uh, and so, okay, so that's part one of the text. Um, if I'm going to go to the end of the text here is, if, if all the tithes were used, it would not be enough. Now that, that's economically, that's almost definitely true. Yeah, I'm just going to say that's true. I'm trying to do the math in my head. At the same time, you, you've got to wonder about all the economic factors of people keeping more of their money. So the, every dollar spent by a person, by their own interest, is a dollar that's more efficiently spent than the government spent it. All of human history testifies that what I just said is true. When people spend their own money... It works out better for the society at large than when government gets their hands on it because government then spends it poorly and efficiently and sometimes immorally. And so where you have this idea where we diminish the federal government, put it back into its constitutional box, and it's not doing all of these things, therefore not having to tax at its rate, 
even if it's not direct charity, but it's people that are involving themselves in more economic activity, then the best way to get people out of poverty would be happening. Because what a government that has never solved poverty, or the what has made our our and I don't even know if it's I say solve, that's too high of a standard. I don't know that government even helps poverty. What has made our poverty situation so much better in this world has not been government, it's been prosperity. I looked it up in Texas, the poverty rate in nineteen fifty in nineteen fifty nine, it was the only time I it was the only year I could find around that era. Poverty rate was about 20%. One out of of every five Texans was living under the poverty rate. Now it's barely 6 or 7% somewhere in there. And that's not because they're getting government checks. It's because Texas, if you take it out of the United States, is like a top 11 or... It's in the top 15. A top 15 economy in the world if it were a republic by itself. It, It was prosperity. It was economic growth that brought so many people out of poverty in this country not government programs. So it, we can see that in China. When they, when they instituted free markets, people came out of poverty. I've played I, uh, who, uh, Bono from U2. I've played audio of him on the show saying the same thing in Africa. Like Bono doesn't like capitalism much. He doesn't like free, free markets. But he will admit it. Where we started diminishing government powers in a lot of these corrupt African countries, African states and started having free markets, the consequence has been when business gets to happen and people get to trade and interact and business takes place, one of the consequences is people come out of poverty. And so it isn't government that fix it, it's prosperity that fix poverty. Not getting a check from a government, but getting a check from an employer or getting a check from someone you did something for, from a customer. That's what solves poverty. Not government, but prosperity. And so, if... You're telling me that we are, the government is doing less. Would the tithe money cover it? Of course not. And it's a good point. Glenn makes a good point. I need to clarify that. No, the churches wouldn't have the resources to give everyone what they're getting as a gift, as a check. But if I had more of my money to invest, to get creative, to invest in a small business, not even of my own. I, I give you an example of this called Lending Club. I have some money in Lending Club. You can, you can be an investor in Lending Club where you put in some of your money and they lend, they lend money out in between ten dollars and $40,000 to people who are either trying to re... It's, it's often used to um, consolidate credit card debt. But some of it is to do home improvement or it's a, it's a small business loan, something like that. And then I get some interest back on the money that I've put into Lending Club. That kind of stuff would have come... By the way, those interest rates way better than credit cards, better than what the banks are getting. And so it's people helping people. I am getting some benefit for helping people by putting my money in for them to borrow and then use and for what, whatever, whatever the best thing is for them and borrowing that money. That would have come along, I think, a lot faster. Again, when you have the government crowding everyone out, we're only now getting to the world that we're even lending to each other. Those microloans, the guy who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2011 or 2012, he came up with the app to connect people like me who don't have a a lot of money, they just live comfortably in America, where I can give, if I want to, a microloan to someone in Africa who's trying to start a business, and if 500 American dollars would go a long way in certain parts of this world 
in getting an entrepreneur going, and then you get a little interest back on on that loan. What, what these are the things that would be I think happening. It, it wouldn't be churches giving tithe money out. It would be because we are now having more of our money to spend, invest, and get creative with. We would grow the economy and by which bring people out of poverty, not because we did it for them, but because we created an economic system where they could do it for themselves. And that's what I want to come back and finish this conversation with. And then a couple more listener, a little bit more listener feedback. And I want to share some audio clips with you for the week. As now let's get specific to this Christian thinking on poverty. No, the church doesn't have the, ta- the, the tithe money to fix everything, but if more people had their own money, it will create an economic system that lifts all tithes, lift all boats, and it's prosperity that can defeat poverty. The last 150 to 200 years of human hif- history has illustrated that. When we come back, Christian thinking on poverty. We'll do that and a lot more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Glad to have you with us on the podcast or on his radio talk 91.9 and 92.9. We have about 17 precious broadcast minutes tick-tocking away, so let's get moving. Talking again about poverty and the question of whether or not if the government did less, would the, could the church do more and actually help other people? And the answer is two parts. One, yes, I think the church would do better, but also the economy would be healthier and therefore making everyone more prosperous. Now, directly to Christian thinking on poverty, on the poor. Number one, for the Christian's heart, the thing we want, uh, first after that, first catechism that that, uh, the Westminster Catechism gives us, what's the chief end of man? Well, the chief end of man is to enjoy God, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But as we continue on in the catechism, we recognize our heart towards humanity because, because man is made in the image of God, that what we want is the best for people. I've not done a great job of being that voice over the years. But that is my heart. My heart, when I talk about economic systems and tax policy and economic policy, is this. I want the policy that is the best for people. Additionally, that policy is going to be geared towards I'm going to talk about freedom a lot. I'm going to talk about people's rights, their own property rights. These are biblical ideas as well. But it it shouldn't be a surprise. There's a correlation. That the biblical ideal of property rights and getting the fruit of your own labor, frugality, hard work, that those things are also the things that are best for people. So that's my first heart, and that should be all of, the, all of our hearts for those following Jesus. What, what do we want out of our economic policy? What do we want out of our tax policy and towards the poor and towards those in poverty? Well, we want the best for people. And the best for people, the best for humanity, that does include provision for physical needs. We do not ignore that people have stuff they need. They need shelter. They need clothing. They need food. They do need medical care. People need things. And so we want a system, an economic system, that provides for the physical needs of people and honors the image of God on them. So let's say then you have a system 
you, you respond, well, if we want a system of provision for physical need, well, then let's give all power, everything to a, a central government, and let that government take whatever it needs to take to give people those physical needs that they have. Well, there's, there's two issues there, uh, maybe three. Well, that doesn't honor the image of God on them. The, the, the giving away of something to someone who could otherwise earn does not honor them. That's a heart I think the conservative and the, 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 the religious person also needs to be able to say, is when I say that there should be less giveaways, it's not a curmudgeonly call. It's that I'm saying of humanity, I believe in them. I believe in that man. I believe in that woman. I believe in their potential. I believe that God gave them talents, skills, abilities. And I believe there are exceptions to that. There are people who absolutely just need help from other people. But I don't believe that's the vast majority by any stretch. I believe there's a lot of people that get assistance from all of us that don't actually need it. But they've been caught up in systems and they've been caught up in messaging that says, you can't, you can't achieve. This system is so messed up. This system is so crooked. You can't achieve anyway, so don't even try. And I am going to be a voice that says, no. Try. You're made in the image of God. You have talent, skill, ability, potential. I believe in you. You can do it. And so giving everything over to government for them to redistribute it doesn't honor the image of God on the person receiving the benefit in, the, in most cases. It also doesn't honor, honor the image of God on the person who did earn. The person who did the work, who did the labor. A workman does deserve the wages for his labor. But then that third part will be functional. Where we continue to give more power and taxation to the government, we diminish the motivation. So people don't work as hard. They aren't as creative. And again, human history has illustrated this. I'm not talking in theory. I'm talking in fact. The, the decade of the 1900s showed us this. The Soviets versus us. They, they should have been able to do more. Why, why did we run roughshod over them economically? And not just economically, but in innovation. Why didn't they do what we did in textiles? Why didn't they do what we did in technology? Why didn't they do what we did even in, in weapons technology, even though that's what they were spending all their money on? Why didn't they do what we did in, in satellites, in internet, in entertainment? Why didn't they do what we did in construction and engineering? Because their system diminished the honor of the image of God on people and their innovation. And so where we have this Genesis mandate where God says to humanity, we'll fulfill the earth, but also subdue it. What we want, and the Christian heart is, I believe you humans that you can subdue it, that you have the potential to go get it done. And so we want an economic system that has provision for physical needs while also honoring the image of God on people. And that economic system is going to be one where there can be freedom to go provide for yourself, but then also some kind of safety net that when that goes wrong, there's some kind of help there. But that's the, I guess I'll stop there. I got more things I want to do on the, I want to do on the show, but 
what history shows us is that freedom and free markets are what's best for people. We, that, that we believe in people. And there will be mess-ups, there will be shortcomings in every system. But the Christian heart on, po- on poverty and towards the poor is that we want a system that will provide for physical needs while also honoring the image of God on them. That's our balance on it. If you have thoughts on that, it's CoreyTruxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruxShow at gmail.com. You can also, if you would, please, uh, you can find Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can contact me there, especially if you disagree with anything I just said. Any of those are good methods to say, hey, man, I think you got this wrong. A couple, One more thing from a listener. Actually, not a listener. He's my nephew. Caleb doesn't listen to the show. He is 16, and he does not listen to my show. I'm a little bit hurt by it, but it's fine. I was leaving his house getting ready to come to my home to do the show and said, hey, man, what should I talk about on the show? And he never has an answer, and he didn't have an answer this time. I was like, I said, well, like, what's a question? What's a question you have that you think people would benefit from? And he said, okay, well, what should American Christians, Christians who live in America, what do we do about poor people around the world when there's so much poverty? So should, should Christians, what, should, what can Christians do? Um, so I'm going to answer that pretty quickly related to what we just talked about. Christians, Christians who are in America, we should help how we can. Uh, Samaritan's Purse does a good job of that. We can donate some of our money. Again, living below our means, stop spending everything that we've got so that we can give away to people who do help the physical, material needs of those in very impoverished places. I don't think, and if you disagree with me, I could hear that out. I don't think the call for the Christian is to seek power, but to seek the power of the government to take money from Americans and give to other places. I don't think that's our call, but it's a good question from Caleb, and I thought I would go ahead and answer on the air, since for the first time, he actually did, did give me something. Um, that's my nephew. He's, all, he's excellent. And also to all the nephews and nieces, to Caleb, Kobe, Sophie, Wes, Wesley, Reed, you guys are awesome. Um, and I think what, maybe their parents will listen and let them know I said so. All right. Um, so here's something I, I, I put together for you. I'm, I'm calling it Stuff I Heard This Week. So it's one of those things where I've talked about before with C.S. Lewis. He says, true enjoyment of something is not completed until you shared it. So you love a movie, you love a song, you love a band, and you really liked it, but it doesn't feel like you really all the way enjoyed it until you told someone else about it. Well, here are some things I heard this week that I have to share with you. So the first one's from a Tim Keller sermon. I listen to Tim Keller a lot. I think he's a brilliant preacher, one of the best there is. And if you don't like sermons that are long, like I I like a 40 to 45-minute sermon. That's where I live. Tim Keller lives in like a 30-minute sermon world, so he might be easier for some of you to consume if you're looking for some good preaching to listen to. This is Tim Keller on a sermon point. Uh, and the, the point that he just made was, all sin is addiction. All sin is addiction. This is Tim Keller. Put it this way. If Jesus Christ is not your master, anything you add to Christ or substitute for Christ as a requirement for being happy in life, listen, I'm measuring my words, anything you add to Christ or you substitute for Christ as a requirement for being happy, you're addicted to it. It's your way of getting a sense of self. It's your way of getting a sense of transcendence. It could be your children. It could be your job. It could be sexual relationships. It could be marriage, whatever it is. Lots of wonderful things. In the beginning, it's what you use to give yourself a sense of self. It's the thing that you use as transcendence. It's a way of dealing with the emptiness of life. 
And if you get it, there'll be a tolerance effect. And you'll find it doesn't quite deliver. And you'll need more of it. And eventually you'll find that you've got to have it. And if you don't have it, or if anything threatens it, you see, it's got you by the neck. You're a slave. Ooh, that's good. All sin is addiction. You hear the language there? That in addiction, let's call it alcohol, there's some amount of it that gets you where you're trying to get, and then that amount eventually stops working. And you need to up the amount to get the same outcome. Equally, in the things that we add to Jesus or try to substitute for him, if it is job, acclaim, people's approval, our reputation, experiences, money, we do get some of those things, but we build, uh, we, we build some kind of uh, level of, well, that didn't do it. I need more of it now. I need more of that thing. It's such a good way to think about sin and to even search our own hearts. What are those things that we, that we add to Jesus, not, not finding total fulfillment in him, that we're looking out at the world for other fulfillments. And let me challenge you to do that. Let me challenge you to think through what that is for you. Um, because I, I know what it is for me, and I'm not going to say it right now. I'm, like, I'm not going to be that vulnerable with you, but I know what I try to fill in the emptiness with. And it, it's never going to be enough. And so clinging to Christ is enough. He's the only thing that is enough. Next one I heard was from Franklin Graham, and this disappointed me. He was on Ben Shapiro's Sunday Special, is the name of the show. Ben Shapiro asks him about Christians' response to President Trump. This is Ben Shapiro and then Franklin Graham. Should, how should religious people deal with the fact that, you, you mentioned he's a flawed character, we're all flawed characters, but how should religious people specifically deal with sort of the character flaws that are evident in, in President Trump without necessarily covering for those flaws, even if they are supporters? Well, a lot of the accusations have been of the president and uh, his lifestyle 20 years ago. And um, he's not the same person he was 20 years ago. Neither First, yeah, he is. I mean, he's the same guy. Um, there's, a, there's a reason a lot. I mean, he's, I guess Franklin here is talking about all of the sexual escapades. There's a reason a lot of guys in their early 70s aren't continuing their sexual escapades. It's probably because they're in their early 70s, Franklin. There's, there's something about opportunity as well. All right, man? Uh, but of course, he's the same person. You know, I actually had that conversation back in 2016 with somebody who said, you know, he hasn't been that kind of womanizing man in, uh, in 20 years. I went, wait, is that, do you think that's the only thing? Do you think it's the womanizing? Oh, there's a whole lot more going on here with this character. Like Donald Trump is literally a list of all the ways people behave before the, in, before the last days come. Just look that up in 1 Timothy 3. You'll see it there. He's a textbook of the character of the last days. Neither you and neither am I. Uh, he's changed. And uh, now he tweets and he will say things that, uh, that so, you know, a lot of people cringe at. It's not just cringing. He tweets, says things that are chaotic, immoral, and sinful. That's the issue there. Not just people cringing. It's not people's reaction to the content. It's the content itself is inherently wrong. But but he, he's attacked every day by the media, every and single can, day. Do I, and that is... I'm sorry, I couldn't find the pause button. Do I get to use that as an excuse? 
He does the wrong thing. He behaves immorally, but he gets attacked so much. People are mean to him. Franklin, Frank, Frankie, buddy. All of us get attacked sometimes. People get mean. It doesn't then mean we can do whatever we want in response. We still have a standard we hold ourselves to, and we should hold leaders to as well, despite them getting attacked by the media. It's his one opportunity to, to fight back. It's uh, Twitter is his newspaper. Uh, he doesn't have to get filtered by somebody. He can go directly to the American people, and it's worked for him. Uh, the American people are, are behind the president. No, they're not. There's a chunk of them. Yeah, there's a big chunk of people who are, but not not at large. It's just very it's very disappointing to hear Franklin Graham change all the standards that we're also that, that he's always had for every Democrat, and he just doesn't treat this one person with the same standard. One more very quick one. This is from the governor of Michigan. Stopped elective surgeries here in Michigan. And some people have tried to say that that type of a um, procedure is considered the same. And that's ridiculous. Uh, you know, a woman's health care, her whole future, her d ability to decide if and when she starts a family is is um, not an election. It is a fundamental to her life. You probably picked up there that she's talking about abortion. She made the decision in her state to let abortions continue while ending all other elective surgeries. One thing I wanted to highlight, I have 30 seconds to do it here. She called it starting a family. It, just like more and more, it's really clear that the folks on the secular left, they know what abortion is. There's no ambiguity about what's happening in the womb. It's not remove like they don't even think about it's not removing a clump of cells anymore. A woman has the right to decide when she starts a family, which by the way she had the opportunity to do that before she decided to have sex without any kind of protection. That was an opportunity to decide. But they're not even hiding anymore. They know that there's a, there's a baby in the womb that we are killing. Thank you for listening to the show. I know that ending was very quick. If you have responses, Corey Truex Show at gmail.com. Until next time, everybody. Peace and love.